Okay, so welcome again to everyone. I really, really love seeing new faces, and everyone who knows that I recognize you knows that I love seeing familiar faces. So um, thank you for coming. I start a lot of my classes, for those of you who have been in my classes before, uh, know that I start a lot of my classes by saying, anything you've learned in previous classes, in previous courses, with previous approaches, please forget for now and just put on the side and shelf it, because we need to employ a new approach. And this morning, if I, get, if I pull it too far and you can't hear me, just... Um, this morning I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask those of you who have learned with me before to please forget everything I've ever taught you. <laughs> and... <laughs> I can't blame that on age. Okay. Um, and open up to the very, very, very beginning where the Torah begins, where the world as we know it begins, to Bereshit, Parak Aleph Pasugal. And the Torah tells us as follows. Our Torah, our creation story, says, Bereshit bara elokim et hashamayim Initially, before there was any world as we know it, there was sham in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, there was tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu, by the way, is one of the most mistranslated terms. Tohu vavohu does not mean void. It does not mean nothingness. Right? We don't see in Breshit creation ex nihilo, something from nothing. We see formlessness. We see chaos. There's tohu vavohu, which describes the state of things as they were. There was tehom, there was ruach elokim, which was mirachafet al penei hamayim. So you had all of these elements, but they were just formless and they were chaotic and they were all sort of there without any specific function yet. Vayomer elokim yihi or. And so God says, let there be light, vayihi or, and there was. Vayar elokim et or, ki tov, elokim bein haor uvein hachoshek. And if we were comparing this to other ancient Near Eastern myths where we see combat myths and the various gods competing for hegemony, here God speaks and things happen. And he sees that this light is good and so he distinguishes it from the darkness. And then after he distinguishes it, he gives it a name. He calls one day and one night. And that marks the first day, so to speak, we'll put that in quotations, obviously, of creation. And now Hashem says there should be this thing, which again is going to be very hard to interpret, and any of the interpret or translations that we give are never going to be perfect. It's translated as firmament, right? This thing, this amorphous, Element which is going to distinguish between the waters above and the waters below. And so this firmament exists to distinguish between those two waters. So what we look up at and call the sky is in fact that thing which distinguishes from the waters below and whatever waters are up there beyond what we can see. And now Hashem brings all of the waters into one space. And he calls this new thing, which is now going to be separate from the water, he calls it Yabasha. This is going to be dry land. And now that the water has been distinguished from the dry land, it's not just called water anymore, it's called Yamim, it's called the seas. 
And now God sees Tov. And again, we're not going to talk about this too much today, but we've done this in other classes as well. It's only called Tov once it is fit to task. When the waters were covering the entire globe, they weren't yet yam because they weren't seas because they were not yet distinguished from the dry lands. And so there was no Tov on Yom Sheni. Yom Shlishi, we have Tov because now the water can do what it was meant to do. It is fit to task or its function can be fulfilled. And then it goes on and it says, Vayikralokim layab, uh, excuse me, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vayomer lokim tad shehaaretz desha esef mazriya zera. Es prio sepri lemino. And he makes all of the vegetation and he has trees that produce their own species. Asherzra obo al haaretz vayihichain. And then it goes on, Vatotzei haaretz desha esef mazriya zera leminehu. The vegetation can not just grow once, but it can also leave seeds so that it can enable the reproduction of all the vegetation on the earth. Vayar lokim kito. And now that it can do that, it is also good. And we keep going like this. It goes on. Now Hashem creates what we call, and again, I keep sort of distinguishing what we call because everything we talk about is from our vantage point, whether or not scientifically or physically speaking, it's a perfectly accurate depiction. We call those things up in the heavens, the celestial orbs, right? We call them the sun and the moon and the stars. And the Torah tells us why God created them. And it says as follows, To distinguish between day and night. Okay, now again, we could ask the obvious question. Didn't he already just do that? We're not going to get into that today. I like doing that every once in a while. It's not just tracking day and night, but it's also tracking all of the ways, right, the, day, the system that we have of monitoring or keeping track of time, which is a day is 24 hours, and then we have seven 24-hour units, which makes a week, and then four weeks, which is relatively, which makes a month, etc., etc. So now we have something, we're going to get back to this in a tiny bit, you're going to have to tell me. We have something to light up the day, and we have something also to light up the night. To distinguish between the light and the dark. I'm not going to read through every single pasuk inside, but if we go a little bit further, Hashem says on the next day, Two different types of living creatures are created. There are those that fly in the sky, the winged creatures, so to speak, and then there are those that are able to swim in the waters. Okay, those are the two living beings that are created, and it goes without saying, those two living beings exist in the different realms that were divided, the heavens and the waters, or the waters above, so to speak, and the waters below. And then it goes on, and Hashem creates all of the taninim and all of the crawling things. Pasuk Chavdalet, verse 24, Now God creates humanity. Oh, excuse me, sorry. First God's going to create the beasts, and then... Hashem is going to create each one limina, and then pasuk chavav, verse twenty-six. Vayomer lokim nase adam bitzalmenu kidmutenu 
Now God creates the pinnacle, so to speak, of creation. If we are increasing in complexity and sophistication, so to speak, the pinnacle of creation, in this, in, as we understand it, is the human being. God creates him, and then it says, Pasuk, um, we're going to jump down to Pasuk, the next chapter, Pasuk Aleph, and then God, not necessarily rests, but ceases to be created. Right? The distinction between the seven days of creation and Shabbat is not that we take naps or we rest, but that nothing creative takes place. Okay. What I want to talk about, and really today is going to be very much an introduction to the course. So um, for those of you that don't like sort of theoretical discussions, you're going to have to bear with me today and a little bit into the beginning of next class uh, because I actually decided to teach this course um, through an approach that I find fascinating that's sort of been germinating over the last couple of years based on all the different studies I've been doing for some of the other courses. And then I decided to sort of just jump in and, and use this approach. Um, in the past, many of you know, I've talked about how important it is to learn Tanakh from the perspective of Pshat. Right? And Pshat means... Thank you. God, you could tell the veterans. Pshat means not simple, not basic, not, right, because all of those words are relative, are relative. Pshat means what the words meant to its original audience. When the words were spoken at Har Sinai, or where Nirmiyahu was sitting in the, in the gates in Yerushalayim and he was giving his nivuah, how did those people understand those words? What did these idioms mean in Akkadian and in Ugaritic and in all the other ancient Near Eastern cities so we can better understand what it meant to ancient Israel who were speaking the basically variations of those ancient languages? How do we understand the laws in the context of the ancient Near Eastern law codes? And the more we understand the ancient world and the culture and the belief system at large, or as, as close as we can get to it without superimposing our modern sensibilities onto the text, the closer we can get to understanding what the words meant to their original audience. Right? And again, it goes without saying, it's not mutually exclusive from drash and everything else we do, but it's sort of the first step. Right? We say pshat, midrash, right? pshat, drash, remet. So we need to first understand what it meant when Moshe Rabbeinu said the words, then we can understand how we're supposed to interpret it today for our needs. Okay? We've talked a lot about context, and we've talked a lot about that. I want to add an additional element in this course, um, which is really, broadly speaking, the study of anthropology. Okay? Well, a lot of people are going to sleep right now. Okay, anthropology is basically the study of humanity, human beings, and their behaviors in a specific culture, but also really universally. Okay? Um, we have different, and there's lots of different fields of anthropology that many of you are probably familiar with. There's, there's linguistics. Archaeology in most countries is considered a form of anthropology. Only when I understand the physical things that a society used can I understand what they meant to those people, what they symbolized to those people, how they were used, and what those people thought and believed and how they behaved and interacted in their daily lives. But there's something else that I want to talk about today. And that's structural anthropology. And structural anthropology, oh, you know what? It does, it takes two seconds, I'm gonna set up this whiteboard, it takes longer than that, we'll wait until next week. Do you use it? Sorry.
is a man by the name of Claude Lévy-Strauss. Now, he's not necessarily the father of anthropology, but he's one of the anthropologists that we're going to be making a lot of use of sort of his, what we would call chidushim, um, because in a lot of ways, the, the, what he added to the field has really transformed the way we see humanity widespread. Claude Lévy-Strauss, um, he was actually a French philosopher who then went to live in the Brazil, and he lived with tribes in the jungle, and he was able to study humanity. His major chitush, broadly speaking, um, and he writes this in The Savage Mind, for example, which was one of his seminal works. And by the way, The Savage Mind is a translation from the French, and there's a lot of machlok uh, whether or not the word savage is even a good translation, right? Because essentially what he said when he was living amongst people that we, as modern, Western, educated folk, may consider savage, is that in reality, Humanity globally, all human beings, conceive of the world in very, very similar ways. They just manifest differently. Okay? And that in order to understand humanity widespread, in order to understand how the human mind works, what we need to do is look at these structures through which humanity understands the universe. And I'm going to give you lots of examples because none of that makes sense um, sort of in a vacuum. So if you look just the, the very beginning, um, source one. Okay, I'm going to read just the first paragraph. He says as follows. All classifications proceed by pairs of contrasts. Okay, he said, everything that exists in the world can only be spoken of or conceived of in contrast to something else. So I'm going to give you a challenge here. Everyone take out a pen. Okay, and write down on your uh, write down on your papers. I want you to define. Right, those you might remember the game taboo, where you have a card with a word, and you have to give clues to the person you're playing with. But then there's a list of words you can't use. Okay, I'm going to say a word. You cannot use its opposite. Okay, write down. Define cold. 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 No, so you can't say not hot. Right. Okay. Define empty. Empty. Oh, it's slipping. That's right. Empty. 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 Or I could challenge the, the flip. Just define full. Oh. Right? There, we cannot, in fact, when we're talking about very basic categories or basic terms, define one without resorting to its opposite. Okay, and that comes down to a very, very simple reason because everything, and this is sort of, um, again, this goes back, it predates Claude Lévy-Strauss, but it sort of um, applies to his theory as well. It says, human beings can only understand things in the context of a relationship. Nothing in the world has absolute meaning, okay? So if I say the word cat, cat, say cat, 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 and we all know what it means. Why do we know what it means? Because... Linguistics have discovered. We have two things that make up language, or two of the things that make up language. And by the way, the whole course is not going to be theoretical, I promise, but we just have to get down some names, okay? We have signifiers and signified. What's a signifier? A signifier is a random sound I make with my mouth. That means absolutely nothing other than to all the other people that know that that random sound, cat, 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 
refers to the little furry animal that's going through my garbage right now. Okay? We have signifiers and signifieds. But the signifier is nothing in a vacuum. It only means something when it's part of a, this is a big word, right? There's lots of words we need. When it is in a relationship with another thing within a system. Okay? So think about it. When we can never have a language with, a language can't ever exist with just one person. Right? Two kids could be playing. I actually did this with my best friend when we were little. And we made up our own secret language. That, that counts because we knew that there were certain words that meant other things and words that meant other things. No one else knew about it, so it's probably not, gonna, it's not one of those languages that's going to have a long uh, shelf life. But that was a language because it was a signifier for a signified, and it was within the system that the two of us had created. It works with words. It works with anything. Think about a, a traffic sign. A traffic sign in this country means something to me because I know a specific color and a specific shape means I need to do a certain thing in my car. In another country, that color and that shape may mean something completely different. Things, everything, words, colors, signs are arbitrary. They only become meaningful within a system that is agreed upon by more than one person. That's how linguistic relationships and structuralism impacts in terms of language. Okay, but it impacts really everything. If I see the small letter T, so to me it's just the little T. If you go to any Catholic or Christian culture, that's a very important symbol, right? Depending on where you are, the cross can either just be the lowercase t, or it could be a very, very important symbol that you have reverence for. And so one of the things that we need to do is think about the relationships between things in order to understand the culture better, and in order to understand the Torah better, and to understand better what B'nai Israel in the Midbar, and B'nai Israel in the times of the Malachim, and B'nai Israel when they went out to Galut, understood about the world, we're going to utilize, or also utilize, this structural approach. Okay, now, going back to Claude Lévi-Strauss, I'm going to go back inside. All classifications proceed by pairs of contrasts. Classification only ceases when it is no longer possible to establish oppositions. Okay, which means we can oppose one thing from another and another from another. And you could keep right, you could say there's a poodle from a shih tzu, and then you could get broader and you could say there's a dog from a cat, and then you can get broader and say there's an animal from a person, and then you can get broader and say there's a living being from a non-living being, but there comes a point where you max out and you get to the end, and you can no longer create binaries between the things you're looking at. And he says, strictly speaking, therefore, the system knows no checks. Its internal dynamism is progressively weakened as it proceeds along its axis in either direction. So as you get broader and broader in your classifications, then you're basically working towards the end, towards those two extremes. And when the system comes to a halt, this is not because any unforeseen obstacles presented by empirical properties of beings of things, nor through any jamming of the mechanism, but because it has completed its course and wholly fulfilled its function. By the way, one of the criticisms of Claude B. Strauss's writing is that it's totally inscrutable. His students all say, unless you actually learned with him and sat with him and understood what he was saying, you can't understand what he wrote from what he wrote. So um, if what he's writing is, is, makes absolutely no sense, you are not alone. Um, his students felt the same way. Okay, but that is our tendency, and it's basically a conceptual grid by which human beings create order out of all of the things around us. 
okay? Because at the end of the day, we are finite, limited human beings. We're surrounded by all of this stimuli, and in order to function in the universe, we need to come up with some way of ordering all of the stimuli that's all around us at all times, okay? Now, um, and by the way, this comes in not just hot, cold, right? Not just the words I gave you, but if you think about it, everything in the way in which we perceive of things. Think about, they always, psychologists talk about siblings and families, right? Siblings and families try to fill the space that the other siblings didn't already take up, right? Because if my brother is good at basketball, I have to be good at karate because otherwise, right, then I'm him and then I'm, if you think about the sense of self, right? How do we define ourselves? It's always in opposition to the other. We're gonna talk about Israel's national identity. We don't do toe vote because that's what they did in Egypt and that's what they did in Canaan and you are kadosh. But kadosh only means not the ab abominable things that the other nations that I took you out of did. So we can only understand things in contrast to the others, okay? Um, now, I'll give you a couple of other examples actually just so we understand how profoundly this impacts our thinking. In terms of cosmology, right? In terms of how we understand the universe, okay? There's before creation and then there's creation. We think in terms of every religion, every theology is always distinguishing between good and bad, right? There's always the good and the evil. Um, if I asked you, for example, um, what is the opposite of BCE? Before. Okay. But that's the most arbitrary, yes, you can argue the alleged birth, but, but it's an arbitrary classification, right, where we say there's a before common era, and then suddenly, one year later, there's a common era, and in our minds, those are binary categories, when in reality, one day led into the next, led into the next, and there's probably more overlap between the two periods than there is, right, if I say medieval, you say industrial revolution. We create ways of understanding history. We create order from chaos because that's what we need to do. Um, in everyday lives, okay, whenever I go back to New York now and I go shopping in the stores, I realize more and more and more every bag you pick up says non-engineered. What does that mean? So in our minds, what do we do? There's engineered and then there's organic. And because of the world that we live in, and we're gonna talk about this next week, we assume organic is good and engineered is bad when it comes to food, right? And again, we're gonna talk about all of that next week, how we assume, how we evaluate categories. But you pick up a bag of carrots and it says non-engineered, no kidding, right? But, but they write that because then you think, oh, well, they must be organic carrots, and then you take them home and you pay $5 extra. So even in the way that we think about the world around us, everything is divided into binaries, okay? Um, and every society really has those underlying rules. Now, when we talk about Sefer Breshit, there's a million different ways. When we say Shivim Hanim La Torah, right, that's really what we mean. There are 70, if not more, ways to take this parak of Breshit and different lenses that we write, you know, when they have cameras and you could flip the lenses. There are more than 70 different lenses we could place over the Tanakh and read it through that lens. We could say the ancient Near Eastern approach, and we could say, what did the ancients believe, and what was the revolution of monotheism, and how did we understand creation differently? Um, if you are a physicist, right, Gerald Schroeder, among many other physicists, has read Sefer Breshit, and through their brilliant conception of physically how the world came into being with the Big Bang and evolution, they read Sefer Breshit, and they try to synthesize those two, and that's the lens they see it through. What I want to do is go back inside, Think about how important human beings, how much human beings rely on binaries, and look back inside the Tsukim we read a couple of minutes ago, and tell me what you notice. And again, one of the most important phrases I will always, 
It is almost axiomatic in any of my classes. So those of you who've never seen this need to know. Okay? Deep breath. Torah. Kilshon. B'nai. Adam. What does that mean? Torah speaks in the language of humanity. What does that mean? Right? It's not, it doesn't mean Hebrew. What does it mean? Correct. It means that Hashem is Hashem, right? Hashem is this thing we will never understand that we can never comprehend. And Hashem gave us this thing that in, in theory contains the secrets to how we should behave and what proper ethical behavior and how we can develop a relationship with him. But it's spoken kilshon b'nei adam. That means that it utilizes, for example, the structures of the human mind in order to communicate its truths. Right? It means it uses idioms from the ancient world that may have meant something that we have to dig up to understand. But in this case, Hashem is communicating what creation meant in the way that the human mind can understand it. So look inside and tell me what you notice. Okay, it's not even just opposites. Tell me there are two milimanchot, two light words, right? Light word is a milamanchot, it's the word that appears over and over and over that clues us in to the basic meaning of the text. Right? The Tanakh is, is very different than the way we read Western texts. Western texts provide us with all the information straight out. It just sort of lists what we need to know. The Tanakh, much like much of Eastern, ancient Eastern writings, invite us to engage in the text. Okay? It's not going to say the main theme is, but it's going to use the word over and over, so it's sort of echoing in our ears, and we start to pay attention to it. What are the two... Okay, excellent. But Yomer, I'm going to hold off for a minute, but that is certainly true. Uh, okay, Tov also. Tov, and we're going to talk about that next week. I'll be more specific, right? Because I didn't give a specific question. The two milimam quotes for creation are what? Vayivra, right? Which is Vayivra is sort of uh, right. That's the sort of intuitive one. God from the word bara, God creates. But there's another one that comes along with it, and without which. Okay? Vayavdel, I got very excited about this board and now I realize it's kind of minuscule. Vayavdel means to distinguish. Okay? I mentioned to you, the waters were, we had waters above and waters below. Until water was distinguished from dry land, it wasn't water. Which is why if I say to you, define wet on your page, you can't do it without saying not dry and vice versa. Okay, so Hashem is communicating the way in which the world was created, kilshon b'nei adam, and our job is going to be to look essentially for what the Torah is telling us by utilizing those forms. Now, look at all, let's put down the categories, just very briefly, on the board, of all of the oppositions, or binary categories. So just scream them out. So I'm going to actually, before we even, there's one before we start. There was Tohavohu, and no one was speaking, right? So there was Ruach Elohim Rakhavet, but we could imagine either, I don't know if the silence is the right word, but certainly mutes, right? There was nothing there. No words were being spoken, or you know what, I'll even say wordless. Someone said by Yomer, okay? There was a wordless universe, and then there was speech or the spoken word. Okay? What else? 
Right? There's aset, lota aset, everything we think about. Now, by the way, you're going to leave class today and you're not going to be able to see anything other than binaries. It's a very annoying. <laughs> I'm just warning you. Yeah? Well, I don't know if this is really a binary, but, but sort of a synopsis. But what about uh, people or Adam versus animals? 100%. So go back to what Claude Levi Strauss said, right? There's a binary and then a bigger binary, right? So, yes, animal from beast, and then living beings from non living beings. And then, right, we keep working our way out till they're extremes. Okay, look inside. You should all have a question on this little thing I did. Um, 
Okay, so again, that's, that's whether, how far, right, how far in or out we're going, but ask another question. Let me ask you a question. There's dry land, and there's the yabash, and there's the water. And the whole point of the dry land is that it has deshe. In order to grow, what does deshe need? Okay, let me ask you another question. We say there's yom and laila, and yom is light, and, and laila is dark. But then Hashem creates, and the point of the moon is la'ir ba'layla. So the question we're looking at, we're saying, isn't that amazing? In order to understand one, you need the other. But then we look back at the text, and is it really entirely clear that there are perfectly black and white binaries? Or on some level, are, is there something else which we are going to call, I'll just start writing on the wall, um, <laughs> the word mediator. Okay? And there's going to be lots of different mediator. There's going to be other variations of this, but let's just talk about what a mediator is for one second. Okay? You have on your sources here. In every myth, you will, sorry, source three. This is Edmund Leach. He was another also sort of building off of uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss. In every myth, we will find a persistent sequence of binary discriminations. Right? And he talks about how right, one of the things he does is he studies the structuralism of myth. Right? If we look at myths throughout the universe and throughout time, what structuralist anthropologists will say is that you can always find the same elements, right? And the state, right? You, my son actually noticed this. He got, my nephew was here visiting from the States and he got him into all of the superhero movies. And my son is like, they're all the same movie. I said, that is correct. That is exactly true because they all have the same basic structural components. Okay. In every myth, we will find a persistent sequence of binary discriminations followed by a mediation of paired categories that are distinguished. Okay. Mediation in this sense, is always achieved by introducing a third category, which is, and all of these words are in quotes. When I put things in quotes, it means this is just what we think. Abnormal or anomalous in terms of ordinary rational categories. I like black and white. Okay, What's this gray? Thus, myths are full of fabulous monsters. Right? What's a monster? Correct. Look at, the, look at the source number two right above. I'm stopping mid-sentence. Uh, actually, you know what? I'll get back to it in one second. Thus, the myths are full of fabulous monsters, incarnate gods, right? All of these are paradoxes. What's an incarnate god? What is a virgin mother, right? This middle ground is abnormal, not non-natural. It is typically, and this is another thing we're going to get back to later in the course, it is typically the focus of all taboo and ritual observance. Okay, if I am Tamei, I cannot venture into the Tahor. If I, uh, if I have two species, Limina, which is the word that keeps reappearing in Breshit, Limina, 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 I cannot take them and mix them because then I have Kilayim. Okay, so a lot of this is going to play in to what we're going to be looking at. Now, one of the things, right, so look at source two, for example. Or actually, I'll give you another great example even before we look at that. Um, the, one of the ones that Edmund Leach mentions, and you tell me what the mediator would be. Okay? He says in, one of the, in the famous Pueblo Indian myth, he was with the Pueblo Indians, he lived with them for years, and he was studying amongst them, and that's where he really developed all these ideas. He says they have one category, the agriculture, which is life. right? Because, and that's obvious, because you're growing things from the ground, and you're sustaining people. 
And then on the other extreme, the other binary would be and he sees that the Pueblo Indians, death, war. So you have agriculture, you have farmers, and then you have soldiers, and they create binaries between the two, right? Now, whether our culture creates binaries is not the, we're looking at their culture. The binary between agriculture, which is life, war, which is death, and then they have a mediator, which they don't know what to do with, which is, think about it, what would be something that could kind of be the same function of agriculture, but also a lot like war, hunters. Hunters go out and kill to feed people. So what do you do with that? Okay, and one of the things which is most interesting about mediators or these anomalous categories, or what we're gonna call, and this is another really important word, anything that has a liminal status, right? Liminal means it's neither here nor there, is that it creates a lot of anxiety for humanity. Why? Because we like categories, we like binaries. It gives us a sense of control over our universe. And when we have things that are crossing back and forth between the two or don't neatly fit into either one, that creates a lot of tension, ideologically, religiously, human, right? Just in terms of being a human being. So look at your sheets, just for example, source two, okay? What would it be the middle ground between Life, what would be the mediator between life and death, for example? Sickness. Okay, so excellent. Sickness, right? And sickness create because what is it? Where is it? It's somewhere in between. By the way, in the ancient world, I would say not just sickness, but sometimes even ghosts, right? Ghosts. There are people today that still believe, right? Someone is dead, they're not alive, and yet I see their spirit moving through the house or something fell off the shelf and I know they're here. So are they dead or are they partaking in this universe still? We don't know. That's the whole fear of ghosts. The, bind, the liminal categories make people, for the most part, very, very uncomfortable. Okay? Um, what do you have between God and human? What? So we have a Navi sometimes. You can have mystics. You can have, right, you can have prophets. Huh? Angels. Angels, I would even put between the heaven, I would use as the mediators between heaven and earth, right? Because they're not, they're not neither, God, heaven, angels aren't gods, but they're supposed to be up there with God because he just said to them, not sad, Don Bitsalmeno, Kijmutenu, right? And yet, here they are down here doing, we're going to see there are other examples in Tanakh where we don't know what to do with them. When Eliyahu Navi dies but doesn't die, and he goes up, but he doesn't, that's, that's a very bizarre, right? And it's not coincidental that the end of the Eliyahu Navi story took on like a whole new life in Jewish tradition because we're enamored by this human being that was by definition or seems not mortal, right? That's a bizarre category. Okay, what human, a, huh? A Kohen. Hmm? A Kohen. Um, hold that, I'm not so sure about that. We'll have, we're gonna look at it when we talk about sacred and, and profane. We'll look at what the, co the function of the Kohen is. That's an excellent point. Um, okay, right, and by the way, what's the difference between, give me something between humans and beasts. This is every ancient myth in the Tanakh, we have examples of this as well. Monsters, beasts, right, you have the Bigfoot, you have in the Mesopotamian myths Enkidu. We have our Shofet, Shimshon, that we're not really sure what to do with because he was a person, but he was also really hairy and he could take a lion and rip it apart with his bare hands and he could take wolves and tie them by their feet. And how does that make any sense? What do we do with Shimshon? We don't know, it's a weird story, right? Because he is neither human nor beast, but he acts a lot like the beast. 
Okay, and so these are all things that we're going to be getting back to. Um, now, even in terms of, by the way, there's this is. Once I was doing the research for this over the summer, then you get all these bizarre podcasts when you start typing things into your iPhone. There is a whole school of thought, which I, was, I, I knew there was a school of thought. I didn't realize that real bona fide universities have, in many of them, parapsychology, okay, which is the study of people who believe in the paranormal. Okay? So for example, if I say to you, okay, um, what exists between the self and the other, Right? It's very important, I am me and there is someone else. And why can I say we are binaries? Because no one can get into my head. I can have thoughts, no one will ever hear them, except what happens when there is telepathy? Uh-oh, then is there a self and another anymore? Okay. What happens, for example, what's the difference between present and future? What do you do when people have dreams that come true? Or what do you have when people, right, when you have people who claim to have clairvoyance or premonitions? And so all of these things, and again, whether we shy away from these liminal categories or run to them, speaks a lot about what our needs are, right? If someone is desperately, right, you always say that the charlatans are taking advantage of people that desperately want to speak one more time with someone that passed or someone that needs desperately to know the future. So what we call charlatans, and maybe or not that's a judgment in and of itself, but what we call charlatans are utilizing the need of that person. Okay, now, I'm gonna give you a couple of other really quick examples and then we're gonna get back into, the, into what we're gonna be doing in the course. Um, I'm gonna use from, modern, from today's examples in Israeli society, because again, once you start thinking then everything you hear over the summer on the radio, you realize, um, and again, I'm not weighing in on this debate in one way or another, I never would. When we talk about the whole issue of gender, right, and changing genders, what is the underlying argument, right, is what? Man versus God. Ah, interesting, perhaps. Man versus God. The underlying debate, okay, yeah. Okay, so we could say nature, nurture. Right? We can, I think on some level, the really, really basic argument, and if you start thinking about modern debates in society, it all comes down to the issue of whether or not they are binary categories. The argument is, is male, female a natural binary, or is it something that we have created? Is it what we would call a construct? Okay, that's the underlying debate. The same thing goes, and again, I'm not weighing in on any of these things, but the same goes for abortion, right? Is it a life versus death issue? Well, it depends if you define the fetus as life, right? It's all about whether or not they're binaries. If the fetus is not considered living yet, then there's no binary. There's no opposition between them. Um, if you listen on the radio, one of the things that's been in the last, I would say, at least year, year and a half, are the mecha'ot nechim, right? The, the handicapped protests that are going on all over the country, okay? And, and if you can sort of sort through the chatter, right? Because it's very emotional and very charged for good reason. But if you sort through the chatter, okay? And you listen to what they're saying, time and time and time again, when they interview people that are handicapped, what they're saying between the anger and between the frustration is, Israel as a society, or any society, right, any given, has created a society where handicapped people cannot fully participate. And in doing so, they have created binaries of handicapped and non-handicapped. And that's what they're saying is not fair. Listen carefully to their arguments, okay? They're saying we are all human beings. 
Society should not distinguish between them by making the world accessible to one and not the other because in doing so, that is unfair. And again, the more you listen, I was watching The Help Came On at the gym when I was on the treadmill, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, if anyone remembers that movie where the white uh, columnist starts writing about the black servants that were living down in the South, and she writes their personal stories. Because by writing their personal stories and publishing a book about them as human beings and not just maids, what she was saying is there is no binary of black and white. We are all people. And so again, the more you think about things in these terms, the more we realize we rely on binaries. And then the question is how we approach them. Yeah. The depth of the hearing, where you have Correct. the opposite of what's going on with other forms of handicap. Correct. Because of the stress um, in recent years of, of, of only using signing, and then others, they can't communicate, and other people can't understand. It's a, but it's, but again, it's not the opposite. It's the same exact phenomenon, right? People with cochlear implants, they form a community, right? And then what they and then when people say, wait, we have right people who are deaf form a community, and then say they say, wait, we have cochlear implants for your children and grandchildren. They say, why are you saying there's hearing and not hearing? I have sign language, or I have, and I am the same as you. Don't create. That's exactly what they're saying. That there is no binary between hearing and those that can't hear. And again, whether that, for everyone else to weigh in on. I'm, but, but these are always the questions that are, we're looking at. Okay, so the question, yeah, sorry. Well, so you have to go with, it seems that you have to go with the numbers. Some little uh, okay, over excellent here. question, which we're gonna talk about next week. Is there something to be said about majority and minority, right? That's an important question that we do need to look at, but do numbers necessarily create oppositions? Yeah. Well, but you, you might also say um, that these uh, uh, binary situations, right, these categories of, uh, where there's a binary situation, sometimes there is a binary situation that later develops into it's no longer a binary situation. Of course, and that's something that's always evolving and something when we're looking, what we're going to be looking at in this course, okay, I'll just go back to sort of introducing what we're going to be doing. Um, did I bring the other quote? Oh, I did. All right, we'll get to that in one second. Um, one of the things that we're going to be doing in this course is looking at, assuming the human mind needs binaries in order to understand the universe, and assuming, right, we're building on assumptions, assuming which we see it does in sheets, for example, right, because a physicist would look at this and say, this is not scientifically valid, it doesn't matter, it speaks to our perceptions of the universe, making all of those assumptions, then what we're going to look at is understanding how the Tanakh approaches binaries, how does Tanakh use binaries. So for example, and again, I'm just throwing out some examples so you understand where we're going to be going. We have, for example, the notion of space. Right? We say Eretz Yisrael is the center, and then everything else is periphery. Right? Those are the two binaries. Is that always the case? And if so, why did there need to have to be a center versus a periphery? What's this concept of space? Of space right? Or more specifically, of sacred space. When we talk about sacred and profane, Right? If they're binaries, can they ever mix or can they not? Right? Are binaries always, do binaries always need to stay black and white? Right? Or can they sometimes be called into question the way the Tanakh takes in Bereshit as a given that there are going to be grays or going to be mediators? So I'll just, again, I'm throwing out examples. If we say, right, give me an example of a character, you tell me, a personality in Tanakh that is a mediator between Native and foreigner. Yitro. Hmm? Yitro. Yitro. Moshe. 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 Okay. 
Rachav. Okay, so throughout Tanakh, we have personalities that are mediators, and the question is, how does the Tanakh see them? Do they remain mediators and we're okay with that? Do they choose to join one side and so they become part of a binary? How does the Tanakh utilize binaries to understand things? Are binaries fixed and they can never be and mediators are never tolerated or are mediators tolerated and if so, when? And if they're tolerated sometimes but not others, right? If I can never go into the Tahor Beit HaMikdash, if I am Tameh, is that necessarily true? Are there exceptions to the rule? Is that the case? And why are some things fixed and rigid and others are not? Okay, um, again, we're gonna look, at, we're not gonna be looking at all of these narratives inside, but I'm gonna mention them as we go through, right? All the brothers, every time you have a chosen, every time you have a Yitzchak and a Yaakov and a Yosef, you also have the Esav and the Ishmael. There's always a chosen is only distinguished from the rejected. Right, Ishmael is rejected as part of Brit Abraham, not as a human being, but as part of Brit Abraham, in order for Yitzchak, right, ki Yitzchak So why do there always have to be these two categories, and how does that play into, more broadly, the Jewish worldview, right? How, do we, how does our worldview affect it? The Tanakh is utilizing the way the human mind works and forcing us, perhaps, to reconsider things along the way as well, and the Tanakh almost gives us a guide for Right? If we're going to say that structuralism is sort of the cognitive approach that we rely on to make sense of the universe, the Torah gives us a handbook. Right? Which binaries are valid, which are not, which can be undermined, which can never be undermined. Um, okay. One, what I want to do is look at this last group. Ah, just going back to Breshit, by the way, for one second. What do you notice about the mediators in Breshit? The mediators in Breshit, the the birds that can also be in the water, or the light that's during the night, or the, what do you notice about it in Tanakh based on how we said human beings generally deal with this anomaly, these anomalous categories? Um, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I'll put them on the side for now. We can't get into the Nakash. It's too, too heavy. Huh? Correct, right? Amphib what's a frog, right? Is a frog. You don't know which one it is. It is, right? Amphibian is a perfect example. What else? But what do you notice about the way Tanakh, again, think about we said these categories make us very uncomfortable, right? It makes us, we don't know what to do with it, and the Tanakh kind of, it's just presented as a given. Right? There's a lot of things the Torah just puts out in Breshi Parak Aleph. We said, if you read the other ancient Near Eastern myths, right, there's all this violence and there's noise and there's fighting and there's blood, right? There's the slaying of Rachav and the and the Tanakh, right? It's just taken as a given. God is the only God. God is omnipotent. He creates the world, the end. I would say the same goes for these liminal categories. They're just taken as a given. The world is created, we conceive of it through binaries. Then there are these anomalous categories that are part and parcel of the universe. The question we have to look at is what is the Tanakh, how does the Tanakh say we approach them? Okay, that's really the underlying question that we're going to be looking at. Now, just to finish up, I want to go down to source six. Hashem stays Excellent. Hold that. That's exactly what we're going to be doing next week. Okay? Excellent, excellent question. And we have to also define total. Right? Okay. I'm going to read you this list. As I'm reading, just reflect on these. They're obviously binary pairs. Just reflect on them for a second and tell me if anything jumps out at you. Okay? And that's a really broad uh, question, so that's really not fair. But male, female, 
active, passive, strong, weak, natural, engineered, dependent, independent, bless you, youth, age, honesty, deceitfulness, silence, noise, civilized, savage, empowered, victim, decisive, indecisive, ignorance, wisdom. Okay, so obviously it goes without saying every one of them can have a mediating category. Well, perhaps. I mean, we know genetically there are, right? There are genetic mutations where in biologically even speaking there can be. No, but a genetic mutation is exactly that. A genetic mutation is, what is this, right? Siamese twins is, no one knows what to do with because here's a person with, with two people in one body. That's, that's. But most, Um, okay, so you're already getting me along the lines of what I want you to start thinking about till next class. They're all spectrums. Uh, okay, so what did she say? they're all okay. spectrums. So I'll say that what you're... You're not active and passive. You can be more active or less passive. Ah, okay, so that's, so that's what we were saying. There's definitely mediators between. You can have kind of active or kind of, right? I mean, we're going to assume active and passive are the extreme. No, no, okay, so we're gonna, okay, back up for one second. We're gonna, we're gonna utilize these words in their most extreme terms, okay. right? Completely active, if there's such a thing, there's, again, there's no absolute, right? We said that from the beginning, there's no absolute anything in the universe. But let's argue the most active and the most passive you could ever get, okay? So, and what we're saying is there's always something that's going to meet, something that's gonna fall, in. there's no black or white for any of them. That's a given. But what else do you notice? There's something, yeah. Okay. That's ex if I were to say to you, okay, everyone raise your hands if um, male is better than, well, that's a bad example. Okay. What? It's my tongue after all. Um, youth or age? And I say, raise your hand if you say youth is good and age is bad, or youth is good. If you look at the list, there will never be unanimity when it comes to value judgment, okay? And that's where we're gonna start with next week, and that's why when people said the words tovara, and the question is, does Tanakh ascribe value judgment to binaries? For example, right, and there are words, one of the things we're gonna have to be very aware of when we're studying, right? If I say free associate, you have to say good or bad. Tuma, you're gonna say bad. Or many of you might say bad. Your knee-jerk reaction might Tuma, I, you could become Tame from being in Nida. You become Tame from having a child. You become Tame from doing the last mitzvah you could do for someone who passed. That's bad. Right? So the question is, are the value judgments that we ascribe when we say <coughs> native foreigner, Tuma, Tahara, are those categories that God are those, excuse me, value judgments that God has placed on those binaries? Or is that our preconceived notions that we are then superimposing onto the binaries? And that's what we're also going to have to be very honest with ourselves when we're studying Tanakh, is to be very, very careful not to superimpose those either modern or whatever our biases may be onto the text. And we're going to be keeping an eye out for that as well. Yeah. But also, I mean, not all of them, but some of these uh, categories, they're... It depends on, from whose point of view 
exactly. Africa, they'll uh, say, these guys are savages and we're civilized. The, the, the native people will say, of course, that's exactly what we're saying. And then you have a kid who grows up in the West, in the upper middle class, who has every advantage in the world, who goes off to India for three for three months with money that his parents gave him to live in India, so he's right to, to be able to go enjoy. It. And he's saying that's right. The slums of India are better than the rigid hierarchy that we have. But but that's right. It's always going to be perspective. It's all that's exactly what we're saying. Perspective, biases, vantage points. And definition and all those things. Oh, hold it. We're going to do a whole section on Kohelet. Kohelet is that there's. Kohelet is one of. But Kohelet is unique in his approach to binaries because he was so heavily influenced by another school of thought, which we're going to have to talk about. Yes. What did you do about the boundary Excellent. Excellent. Boundaries, right? So give me examples of boundaries. We have geographical boundaries that, again, unless it's sea land, they're made up, right? Boundaries themselves are constructs that we're always fighting over for some reason, yeah, but right? They're always moving. They're moving, but the question is, what do we do? What right? Do we do about? Correct. Ruven God and Ruven God and Chatzimenashe said, "We want to be a part of you, but we're going to be right beyond the river." What? I don't know what to do with you, right? Sexual huh? Okay, incest is a big theme that, that the structural anthropologists look at, right? Everything can only be understood within the context of, right, structures. So if I decide a father means something and a wife, right, a wife means nothing. A wife is only understood in the context of the structure of marriage. She is a, the wife of a husband, and a husband is, right, the husband of the wife. So then what happens with an uncle and a niece? Is that still a relationship that can't be... Incest is all based on these categories. You have, you have an elaborate narrative. A, a man isn't supposed to look at his. Ah, excellent, 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 excellent. If his brother dies, he Yibum is the up. flipping of Arayot. Exactly. Okay, so that is that. We are going to begin next week. Start thinking. Again, it's like a fun exercise because once, I don't know, for those of you that were in my class when I was in the metaphor place, I don't know if you're I, everything is metaphor. Now you're just going to see black and white everywhere you go. So just keep it in mind over the course of the week. See what comes up. See what strikes you. And we'll pick up from here.